Lord's people. Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me this evening, friends, back to Psalm 66. And I'd especially like to focus in on verses 8 to 12 this evening. Psalm 66, verses 8 to 12. O bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard, which holdeth our soul in life, and suffereth not our feet to be moved. For thou, O God, hast proved us, thou hast tried us, as silver is tried. Thou broughtest us into the net, thou laidst affliction upon our loins, thou hast caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, but thou broughtest us out into a wealthy place. If you were to go to the National Gallery in London or some other great art gallery, uh, you would be able to see many masterpieces by artists of past and present. Uh, perhaps if you go, there would be some uh, exquisite work that you would particularly want to see. Uh, I hail from Suffolk, and the painter most commonly associated with Suffolk is John Constable, uh, who painted the Haywain, one of England's most famous paintings. Uh, if I was to go to the National Gallery, uh, that would be something I would want to see. But if you go along to a gallery and you want to look at some exquisite painting, uh, you need to stand in the right place because if you were to stand, and excuse the slight humour in this, but if you were to stand with your nose pressed up against the painting, you would not really understand why it was so special. No, you need to stand back, uh, perhaps even to the back of the room to really take in the, the grandeur and the detail, the beauty of that painting. Being so close, you can only see a part of it. Or if you're in some national park, uh, like the Peak District here on your doorstep, the Yorkshire Dales, the Lake District, or somewhere up in Scotland, and you were down in the valley, uh, perhaps amongst the trees, uh, and you would then begin to think to yourself, well, national park, that's not that much different to where I would go near home. What's so special about it? But if you were to get up on the mountaintop uh, and then see... Uh, this glorious vista in front of you, then you would understand, yes, this is a national park because it is spectacular, it is beautiful. The same applies in the Christian life. When we are in the valley of affliction, we don't understand what is happening. Things don't make sense to us. And so what we need is to come to the word of God to give us that panoramic view, that uh, proper perspective on what is happening, to understand our experience and to see the full picture and perhaps then we can understand what God is doing. And that really is the picture that the psalmist paints for us in these verses here. Uh, he speaks in uh, detail and uh, a wonderful picture form. Uh, how God deals with his people. And so we're taking as our theme this evening God's unsearchable ways with his people, God's unsearchable ways 
with his people. And we'll see three things about the Lord's unsearchable ways. First of all, the preservation of his people. Uh, secondly, his testing of them. And thirdly, his blessing uh, upon them. His preservation, his testing, and his blessing. The psalmist, uh, as he often was, was moved to praise. And the psalmist never praised the Lord for no reason. Uh, there was always reasons affixed for worshipping the Lord. And he urges others to join him because of all that God has done. Oh, bless our God, ye people, and make the voice of his praise to be heard. He's calling the nations, the, even the Gentile nations at this point, to worship the Lord. Why? Because of what he's done among his people. So to invite them to come from north, south, east and west and to bow down before the Lord and to give him praise because of what God has done among his people. And the first thing the psalmist speaks of is God's preserving work in his people. Uh, he holds, uh, I have it in the King James, he holds our soul in life. Uh, he holds our soul in life or he puts uh, life into our soul. Now, uh, God is the author of life. He is the only one who has life in and of himself. You and I, we are dependent for absolutely every breath we breathe. Uh, we receive that from the Lord. Uh, he has life in and of himself, and he had given life to his people. He had birthed the nation of Israel. That when they were not a people, he made them a people. And having put life into his people, he kept that life. He sustained it. And that was no small thing, because there were lots of threats upon the life of his people. So many threats and attacks on her livelihood that could have resulted in that life being snuffed out very easily. At times it seemed that destruction was at the door, but God, in his dealings with his people, averted certain disaster. Uh, right at the very beginning of their history as a nation, they feared that all was lost before they even started. They were at the Red Sea, and there they are with mountains on either side, the Red Sea in front of them, and Pharaoh bearing down upon them. Where are we going to go? We're lost. Uh, we're doomed, we might say. But God preserved the life of the nation. As the psalmist records in verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land. They went through the flood on foot. There did we rejoice in him. All the attacks of enemy nations that followed, the Philistines and others like them, God protected and kept his people because he held their souls in life. What a comfort this is for us, that the Lord holds our souls in life. Because life is so fragile, it's precarious, isn't it? Uh, James gives us a, a wonderful illustration of this. He says, what is your life? It's like a vapour. It rises for a little while, and then it's gone. So is our life. If we had to hold on to our life, it would just run through our fingers, wouldn't it? How could we keep hold of our life? We couldn't. But God has put life in his people and he holds it there firmly, securely, safely. 
Jesus said, uh, didn't he, in John chapter 10, uh, about the safety of his people, I give unto them eternal life and they never will perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. We are safe because God holds our souls in life. And that is true individually for each of the Lord's people. It's true for his people corporately, uh, for each assembly of his grace. Uh, there are assaults uh, upon the Lord's people. The devil is very busy. Uh, and there have been times when it seemed, uh, at least universally, like the church of Jesus Christ was about to go to nothing. You look through the dark ages, the middle ages, and you think, where is the gospel? It's almost gone. And yet the Lord was there. He, he, he upheld his church in life. And then comes the Reformation and uh, all that has followed ever since. In the midst of everything, God holds her soul in life. But the psalmist extends his thoughts concerning God's preservation from the life of his people to their position. Because he goes on to say in verse 9, he suffers not our feet to be moved. Uh, literally it is, he does not give to staggering our feet. Uh, I believe the ESV has, he has not let our feet slip. He has not let our feet slip. Now this brings in a, a, a Hebrew metaphor, uh, which maybe requires a little bit of explanation, because the Hebrew metaphor of the feet refers to our station in life, the pathway we are on, uh, the whole course of our life, our lifestyle, you might say and we need as the lord's people to be kept on the narrow way that is where our feet need to be or to use isaiah's uh, imagery on the king's highway of holiness and so asaph can say in psalm 73 he says my feet were almost gone my steps had well nigh slipped he got to the point where he suddenly realized he'd drifted so far from the lord and his grace and he realizes almost fell off the precipice. He'd almost gone. He'd taken his eyes off the Lord and spiritual realities, and so much so, he was close to falling off the way of grace. So it was for the psalmist here. He knew the nation was prone to wander from the Lord. They were prone to forget God, to turn their back upon him and go after the things of the nations round about them to slip and to slide away from God and apart from the Lord that is what you and I would do as well we would slip back into the world and into our own sins because we are so weak in ourselves but the psalmist says the Lord does not let our feet slip uh, we may stagger a bit we may stumble but ultimately the Lord ensures that our feet do not slip. Uh, Hannah, that great woman of Old Testament scripture, in her great praise to the Lord following uh, the birth of her son uh, Samuel, the answer prayer there, she said, the Lord will keep the feet of his saints. And elsewhere the Bible tells us he will never suffer, he will never allow the righteous to be moved. 
And so though it may feel spiritually like our legs are tired, our, our feet are just wanting a, a rest and ready to give up, our knees are getting feeble, God will keep his people. Uh, the people of God may feel that they are nigh to slipping from the way, but God will maintain his people. He will keep them by his power in his way. So the Lord preserves his people. He preserves them in life. He preserves them uh, in his way. He doesn't allow their feet to slip. And so the psalmist calls uh, everyone to praise the Lord. He calls the whole world to praise the Lord just what he's doing among his people, that he's keeping them, he's preserving them. But in case anyone thought that it, he wasn't painting a realistic picture, he goes on, secondly, to speak of the testing that God brings to his people, the testing God brings to his people. And this is something that happens to all of God's people. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, the great church father of the late 4th and early 5th century, he put it so well, God had one son on earth without sin but no son without suffering. One son without sin, but never one without suffering. And God brings suffering into his people's lives uh, for a multitude of purposes, and the psalmist uh, draws our attention to two of them. Uh, first of all, he speaks in verse 10 of the purpose of refining our graces, of refining our graces. Uh, he says, uh, For thou, O God, hast proved us, uh, thou hast tried us as silver is tried. God does preserve his people, he kept, keeps them, but he tests them, and sometimes tests them sorely. Uh, and this word proved means to, to scrutinise, to examine, uh, to probe, uh, to investigate. Uh, just like a jeweller would examine a diamond under a microscope uh, to see if it's authentic, to see if it is, is the genuine article. Uh, so the Lord uh, looks at his people to see if they are genuine. He subjects them to certain tests to see, and so they can also see that what is in them is true faith. Uh, I had the opportunity to see a jeweller do that uh, once. I needed to get a ring for a young lady a few years ago and I remember watching the jeweler uh, of course he knew all his diamonds were right uh, but to actually check the quality of them and I remember being astonished he looked at the first one and said well that's not very good uh, and got onto one that he was much happier with uh, but the Lord examines and tests his people in that way to see if they are genuine and that testing means probing and searching spiritually. It can be quite an uncomfortable experience, like some medical examinations can be uncomfortable. Uh, the Lord comes with his word, and it's a sharp, two-edged sword, isn't it? it? It pokes us, it prods us, it makes us feel uncomfortable. That is what we need in the preaching of the word of God, to, to get into our hearts and souls, to uncover our sins, to face us up with who we are. Preaching can be too soft. Of course, we don't also want preaching that is uh, too hard either, but uh, preaching needs to bring in the, the cut 
of the word as well as the comfort of it too. And the psalmist furthers uh, his point here by giving us this illustration from silver. He develops the idea further by the image of a silversmith refining his silver. Now, children, if you were to go various places on the planet, Africa would be one place, I should think, South America another, and if you dug deep enough into a, a mine, you would come across what they call silver ore, uh, and that is basically a lump of rock, and that's got silver in it, but you need to subject it to a lot of processes in order to get the silver out that can then be used for jewellery and all sorts of other things. But in amongst that silver is all sorts of other impurities, and they need to be taken out. And so one of the things that would have been done in the time of the psalmist is to subject it to real heat, to put it in the fire. Uh, and as the rock heats up, things begin to melt. And you get the silver, and then on the top you get the scum. It comes to the top, and a very careful silvers uh, silversmith can skim that off so that he's just left with the pure silver underneath. God doesn't only want to see if there's genuineness in our profession, he wants to remove the impurities as well. Because there is a lot of dross, a lot of muck and filth has to be removed out of our lives. We have a lot of sin with our grace. And the only way the Lord can do that is by putting his people into the crucible, and the crucible is hot. It's therefore painful being in the crucible. And so we must go through what Peter calls the fiery affliction in order for God to prove us, to remove our impurities, to sanctify us. So he does that in order to refine us. But the psalmist also shows that God brings... Uh, uh, these tests upon his people in order to show our helplessness, to show our helplessness. Now, before we open up the details of what he gives in these other pictures in verses 11 and beginning of verse 12, notice the pronouns with me. This struck me as I studied this. Notice the pronouns in, uh, from verse 10. Uh, for, if I perhaps put it in more modern English, for you, O God, have proved us. You have tried us. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction upon our loins. You have caused men to writhe over our heads. It's, the psalmist is absolutely clear that it is God who has done this. It's not accident. It's not the devil. It's God himself has brought all of these trials and tribulations, these afflictions that the people are passing through. All of these hard experiences come directly from the Lord. Uh, Job, uh, that great saint of old who was tested beyond what perhaps any of us uh, have been tested or would want to be tested, uh, even he early on realized, he said, what? Shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil? By which he meant not just, he didn't mean moral evil, he didn't mean anything that was wicked, but evil in the sense of disaster or catastrophe. Uh, despite the claim of some popular uh, false preacher in America, good, sorry, bad things do happen uh, to good people uh, in as much as they are good through Jesus Christ. 
God brings his people into suffering, into difficult times, into straits. Matthew Henry says, we are never in the net, but God brought us into it. Never under affliction, but God lays it upon us. And so whatever we meet with as individuals or as churches, we need to see the hand of the Lord in it. And whatever happens to say, yes, it is the Lord that has done this so easy to look at human causes and to say well if only that hadn't happened or if only that person hadn't said that or done the other but no all this has been done by God ordained for the good of his people in the early church there was a man called Babalas Babalas and he was eventually martyred for his faith as many were in the early church and it is recorded of him that as he went to the place of execution, uh, he said these words, Be now joyous, O my soul, the Lord is doing good unto thee. Be now joyous, O my soul, the Lord is doing good unto thee. That's staggering, isn't it, to think that the man could face uh, his place of execution in that way, seeing the Lord uh, even in it. Oh, that the Lord would give us grace to meet our lesser trials with such fortitude and joy. And so God brings trials to his people. And these three pictures show us that they come to show us our weakness or our helplessness. Uh, Paul, Paul put it so well, and I hadn't noticed it until we read it earlier. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, he says there uh, in verse 9, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. We, we suffered in this way, we might paraphrase it. And for this purpose, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. Well, we are all prone of us to self-sufficiency, to trust on ourselves. And one of the great purposes God has in trial and affliction is to drive us out of ourselves, and to drive us to lean upon him. Well, these three pictures then quickly... Uh, first of all, we're told that he has brought us into the net. Brought us into the net. Uh, I wonder, children, if you've ever seen uh, pictures or video clips, perhaps, of animals that have been tangled in a net. Maybe a, a turtle or a shark or a dolphin. They're caught in one of these fishing nets at sea, and they thrash as hard as they can to get out of it, but they are stuck. And, of course, we hope that someone will be able to uh, cut them loose and they'll, they'll be okay. But they, no matter how much they struggle, they, they cannot get free. They're stuck, totally tangled up. And God sometimes does that to his people. He brings them into experiences whereby they are perplexed and confused and we, we try all sorts of ways to get out of it and yet there's just no way through. Uh, we do well for trying, but... In the end, we just have to fall back and say, Lord, help me, I'm stuck. We are exhausted through our efforts, and so the Lord teaches us that way our great helplessness. And we have to ask the Lord to take our feet out of the net. Psalm 25, verse 15. But at other times, uh, the Lord lays uh, affliction on our loins, or in the ESV, you laid a crushing burden on our backs. That, that, that's a good translation. That captures the, the thrust of it. 
So it's on the, the, the focus, the loins is on the lower part of the back, that back, the part of our back that really feels the burden if we're carrying a load, a heavy backpack, or as I've done in former employment, sacks of potatoes, you eventually feel the, the stress there in your lower back. And this is a, a picture of a spiritual reality because that is what it can feel like the Lord is doing with us at times. We're, we're, we're weighed down. We, we feel the burden of it. We're encumbered and bowed down under the weight of our experience. And we feel we can't carry on. We can't, Lord, I can't carry this weight any longer. Well, what's the point of the Lord doing that? Well, it's to show us that we are weak. We need him. And that we can come to him and cast our burden upon the Lord. And he will sustain us. Now, that can be... Difficult in and of itself in order to actually cast our burden on the Lord. The Lord has to teach us even that. But the Lord shows us uh, through putting burdens upon us how much we need him. But then thirdly, uh, he speaks in verse 12 of the Lord causing men to ride over our heads. The psalmist says this time of testing can feel like we're being run over by a troop of horses. You may have seen uh, films, reenactments of this, but um, a cavalry charge in medieval times was a frightening thing. To be able to stand there against it as uh, 50, 100, 200, or however many more heavy horse uh, with riders and lances and all the armour are charging towards you, the ground shaking, and knowing they're just going to come right at you, regardless of... Uh, whether you're there or not, a, a terrifying thing. And, of course, if the infantry lines broke, people just got crushed underfoot. There's no mercy whatsoever. And the Lord's people pass through experiences like that. They can feel that people are just treading all over them. They're crushing them. And there's nothing we can do. What can you do if a horse rides over you? Lord, help them. Help them. No strength to do anything but just to cry out, Lord, save me, Lord, help me. And so the psalmist uh, speaks here about the great testing he brings his people into. And for these two great ends, one to sanctify us, to refine our graces, to take away the dross, and secondly to teach us our weakness and our need, therefore the strength of the Lord. But thirdly and finally this evening, uh, we notice the blessing uh, that the psalmist speaks of in closing, the closing part of verse 12. Uh, having recounted all the troubles that the Lord had brought upon his people, the psalmist exclaims, we went through fire. We went through fire and through water. But notice, my friends, they went through. They were in fire. They were in water, in the floods. But they went through. They came out the other side. The fire ultimately proved them, only proved them. It did not consume them. They were not swallowed up by the floods of waves. And that is what God has promised to his people as we read uh, right at the beginning of this service in Isaiah 43, 
the Lord's promise to his people, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. And so the psalmist can look back and see all that the people passed through. And he was with them, it would seem. But they came through it. They came through it. There was an end to it. All things last and have an end. As shall please my heavenly friend, is the way the hymn writer put it. And so whatever it is for you this evening, my friend, individually, corporately, here, as a church, the affliction has a set time and length and intensity, all ordained and decreed by our faithful Father. And if you are his, you will come through it. You will come out the other side. It will not consume you because God will not allow it to consume you. He will not allow the fire to burn up his people. He will not allow his people's heads to go down under the waves. But then notice with me uh, the wonderful conclusion that he speaks of. He says, we went through fire and through water, but, and oh, how we praise God for the buts of Scripture. Uh, the buts of God's intervention, the buts of God acting. He said, but you brought us out into a wealthy place. They were sore tested and tried. At times they felt they were going to sink or be burned up, but God brought them through and saw that there was great blessing on the other side. Uh, what we have here is a wealthy place or in the ESV, a place of abundance. And this word wealthy uh, is only found in one other place, a, a very well-known passage, Psalm 23 in verse 5, where the psalmist speaks about my cup running over. And it is that idea of overflow or running over that is at the heart of this word. And so really it would mean a, a well-watered land, a fruitful place, a place of refreshment, and rest because in the Hebrew world if you've got water then you can grow things it's productive it's fruitful it's abundant you brought us out into an abundant place a wealthy place doesn't this make our trials a little easier to bear knowing that that is what lies on the farther side the Lord has promised that his people will come through and on the other side be brought into his rich blessing. And the road to blessing is through trial and through affliction. The pathway to the crown is by way of the cross. And that was the way for our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the way for all of his disciples, for the servant is not greater than his Lord. And that is what Peter really spells out in his first epistle. Yes, there is a crown of glory that awaits each of his people but we must go through the fiery furnace the afflictions in order to reach it perhaps this evening my friends you are in the thick of some trial that the Lord has brought upon you uh, you cannot see the end of it you have no idea how it might be brought to a close you don't understand it why Lord has this happened to me why is it going on so long what is the point of it all? 
And of course, all of those things then weigh heavily upon us, don't they? All those unanswered questions and the difficulties, the pain of our circumstances. This evening, my friend, I would invite you to come with the psalmist, stand back and look at what God is doing. Take in that panorama. Yes, we might be in fire, we might be in water, we might be in the net, we might have people running, rushing over our heads like horses, but God is at work. He, he's doing things, he's accomplishing things for his glory. Stand back and see his whole plan and purpose, see the, the glorious and bountiful outcome and God's way through it all. God will bring us through. He will bring us through to that place of abundance and how we should then join with the psalmist in worship of God to bless our God, ye people, and to make the voice of his praise to be heard. Uh, to say with the psalmist in Psalm 107, oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And surely once we are on the other side and we look back, and particularly from the vantage point of eternity, when we see all the way the Lord our God has led us, we will see there were no mistakes. It was all good, all done in love. And it has all worked salvation in his people. Truly, the Lord's ways with his people are unsearchable. They are unsearchable. They are beyond our grasp. And this is what Paul says, and I leave you with Paul's words uh, being far better than mine because they are Holy Spirit words as well. He says in Romans 11, O oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counsellor? Or who hath first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again. For of him, and through him, and to him, are all things to whom be glory forever. 